Um, I entitled today's message, King of Kings, and there is no handout in your bulletin. All right. So you didn't get ripped off. Uh, well, actually, you did get ripped off, but but you all equally got ripped off. That's what's nice. It's not just you personally. I did not put in a fill in the blank and I already got stopped this morning. Yes, by w- one of my friends in the back that said, what are you doing without a fill in the blank? I can't move forward. So anyway, um, hopefully there will be enough here for you to take notes on. But um, when I talk, when I deal with the Christmas story, this is going to be kind of our family Christmas. I don't have the ability to sit down in my living room with all of you and uh, maybe sing some songs or to, t- or to read through the word and read through the Christmas story. So we do it here. Now, at my house, I don't have a choir. So that's pretty cool because did we all appreciate the choir? I thought they were awesome. Um, there's something powerful about all those voices coming together and singing out. It's pretty amazing. So now I don't have a choir at home and I try not to bore my family with trying to preach on Christmas. So um, this is our time to kind of look through the Christmas story. But because I know that most of you have heard the Christmas story multiple times, each and every time I engage with a story, I try to keep it fresh for myself, try to keep it fresh for you. So we try to turn the diamond one more degree and we look at it in a very different way, maybe with a different theme or a different idea. And this year, what caught my attention was the idea of royalty that went all the way through the story of Christmas. And so I'm going to be bringing that out and enhancing that for you today. And I hope that it's something that will bless your life. Now, this is what you'd call a topical lesson Lance style. And here's what it means. Now, normally I preach through books of the Bible and you're all familiar with that. And I don't teach topical for a reason, which I can get into another time. But part of the reason is I will drive you mad today. If I do a topical, it basically means I'm going to jump all over the Bible, all over the place, backwards and forwards, Old Testament, New Testament. And so you're going to try to keep up with me today. I'm only going to slow down and let you read with me five times. All the other times, I'm going to just go blowing right past it really fast. And so unless you are real quick in your Bible, it's going to be hard to keep up. So I'm going to give you a heads up right now on the first passage you can turn to. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. We're going Old Testament. It's page 219 in the Bible's handed to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, page 219. And I want to begin with just one concept for you to chew on as we begin. And the concept is this. What's a king? We are not familiar with kings in modern day America. We deal with presidents. We deal with guys that we elect. We get to choose our leader. And then if we don't like them, we can choose to get them removed. Well, that is not at all what the New Testament and Old Testament people dealt with. They dealt with sovereigns, with rulers, with kings, that if you did not do what they said, they would kill you. That's how it worked. They knew what it was to have a leader that was of absolute power and had power over life and death for you. They all knew that. So when they hear that a king has arrived, it has massive implications. It is not just a figurehead. It is someone that what they say goes. Now, when I began to look into this, I began to realize, wait a second, I'm seeing a pattern over the last couple months of my preaching. Something keeps coming out. And I have to apologize for that because when I preach, I preach through things that God is teaching me. And one of the things that God's been busting me on a lot lately is the idea of submitting under authority. Uh, apparently, I've been have some problems in my life that God's trying to help me root out. And I'm not 
real good at the whole submitting in total thing. So a lot of my messages will keep giving this theme that we need to submit under the Lord's authority. So you're kind of basically my therapy. Just thought I would let you know that. I basically share it with you and I feel better about myself. So all of us, I believe, however, need to understand the role that a king plays. A king cannot be a king in title only. He must be a king in practice. Therefore, if Jesus Christ is king, your life must alter. And that is what we will study this morning. Would you pray with me for the word as we begin? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes and our hearts to learn what you want us to learn today? That, Lord, that we might be able to see it, implant it in our hearts, allow it to transform us from the inside out, and then, Lord, that we would be different because of it. And as you are the great and mighty King, and as we see you un- Un, I, I don't know, Lord, unpackage right in front of us where you begin to open up your word and we see you more and more. May we respond to that in a way of bowing our knee to you as the great King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, Lord, make us your people for this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. Now, the setup to this is that the great king of Israel's history was a man by the name of King David. Now, we all know him as being famous for the David and Goliath scenario, but he went on to become king. And as a matter of fact, he was kind of the big dog in Israel's history. And Israel had a really weird engagement with the idea of a king. They wanted a king really bad, and they kind of wrestled with God about it. So he allowed them to have a king. Their first king was kind of a bomb. That was Saul. And then they moved on to David. After David came who? Solomon, his son, and a lineage was begun. Now, David, as king, had a right-hand man by the name of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of God and kind of God's voice box into David's life. When God wanted to say something in correction or in extreme encouragement, he would fire it through Nathan, and Nathan would say, Hey, David, real quick, I got a word from the Lord for you. And he would share that with David. Sometimes David didn't like the message, and sometimes he did. This is one of those good messages. So we pick it up here in verse four. It says that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, now God is going to talk directly to David through Nathan. Verse eight. Now then tell my servant, David, this is what Yahweh almighty says. That's the capital L O R D. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house 
and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, when you read through that, you get you might get a little confused as to who he's talking about, because he's talking about three separate entities. Uh, when you read some of it, you go, oh, I, I totally get it. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment about the, the throne will be established forever. This is clearly a messianic prophecy. And is it? Yeah, it is. This is called the Davidic covenant, one of the greatest covenants of all Jewish history. And yes, it's talking ultimately in the fulfillment of Jesus. But it's also talking about his son building a house for God. Now, that you need a little bit of background on the story because... David wanted to build a temple for God. He really bad wanted to kind of give back. God had done so much for him. He wanted to build a temple in God's name and give God a place that was fancy to live in. And what did God say? No. Why? Because he said, you're a man of war. You shed blood. I'm not doing that with you. I'm going to do it through your son, Solomon. He will get to build my house. And indeed, Solomon built the first great temple, if we all remember that. So it's also talking to Solomon, but then it talks about and when he does wrong, I will correct him and this and that. And he's also talking about the generations of kings that will come from David's lineage throughout the years. He's also speaking to them. Now, the reason why this is so crucial and so important is because to the Jewish people, genealogy is everything. Why? Because you've got to be tied to Abraham to be a Jew. And you have to be tied to David to be a king. And so when they begin to talk of this coming Messiah, when Jesus comes in and stirs the pot and causes all, causes all kinds of trouble, they need to know whether or not he's in the line of David. And you will hear the phrase and the name of the son of David over and over and over again because it's so important. The Jews knew that God promised that the coming Messiah that would change the whole world would come through his physical line within the Jewish people. That Davidic covenant was massive to their whole culture and to everything they knew. That is why we begin our Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1. Would you turn with me there? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, page 681. And we find it so interesting that Matthew begins the gospel of Jesus Christ with a genealogy list. You would look and you'd say, what an incredibly boring way to start a book. Man, you obviously don't know about sales. You never start a book with a list. No one's ever going to buy your book. All right. Now, obviously, he was not writing for sales. He was writing to explain something to the Jewish people. But he begins with a list. What is the list about Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. That's it. We pick it up in verse 16 at the end of the list. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. His whole point is Jesus is legit. That was his whole reason for putting in that list. Now, is it really 14 generations? We can study that stuff another time, and we have. Genealogies, if you take the time, are fascinating. If you don't, they're extremely boring. Moving on. Okay, here we go. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 26, page 723. 
Luke 1, verse 26, page 723. This is where the Christmas story that you and I know, so familiar, begins. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel. Now, who's Gabriel? Gabriel is an angel that is known as a messenger of God. And he is one of the only two angels ever named in Scripture. Who's the other one? Michael the archangel. He sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in the region of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of who? David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And here's the key part. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, you thought your Christmas season was stressful. How about hers? <laughs> right? Oh, I got to pack, uh, you know, I got to wrap a lot of presents. She's like, oh, I got to have God. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, there's a little different tension there maybe for her. So as she's going through, she gets this amazing message. This angel rolls into her life, and I don't even know what she's doing. I don't know if she's sleeping. I don't know if she's just spending time in her day. And an angel shows up, and this angel says, Hey, your whole culture talks about this coming Messiah. You know that there's this mighty king that's going to raise up Israel, and his throne will never end. That would be your baby coming. Just like that. So she doesn't know all the ins and outs, but she knows that all the weight of the nation now rests upon this child that she is about to have. That's a big deal. So I love when mankind tells God what's up. And so she says, well, there's a problem. You see, I'm actually a virgin. He said, no, no, no. We took that into consideration. We knew that. Okay. And so we're going to go ahead and compensate for that. We're going to go ahead and we'll handle everything. Don't worry about it. Well, Now, as she moves through her life, this is a little nerve wracking. Well, sure enough, it becomes very clear that she is now pregnant. Well, that causes some pretty serious problems between her and her fiance, right? Her fiance is Joseph, a a great guy. And tradition tells us a lot about him. Some say that he was much older than her and that he was more well established. There's a bunch of reasons why they say that. But anyway, he loved this woman and he was a good man, a man of solid character. And he knew that if he was just going to divorce her, because obviously women don't become pregnant without having sex with another guy. So it's almost like, well, clearly there's some type of bad stuff going on here. So I'm going to go ahead and just divorce you. He decides in his heart to divorce her, but he doesn't want her life turned upside down. He doesn't want her having any more pain, any more difficulty, even though she seemingly has violated a covenant with him. So as a great man, he decides to divorce her quietly, to not do it in a big public fashion, to try to harm her. And then what happens? Well, an angel shows up to him too. Hey, Joseph, I know your plans. I know what you're going to do. Hold on a second. We have this one. This is a God thing. I know you got to trust me on this one. I know this has never happened before and it's not going to happen again after that. But this is a very special event. Your son which obviously is your stepson, is the Messiah. 
begins to relate these things to Joseph and Joseph in his trust and love of God agrees to take her as his wife. And then what happens? Well, Mary goes on a trip. Y'all remember where the trip where Mary went? It's almost like along the way she takes off to Elizabeth, her cousin. Why? Well, Elizabeth's pregnant too, and she has a miraculous baby. So they're going to hang out and talk about miracle babies. All right? It's kind of like Elizabeth wasn't supposed to get pregnant. All of a sudden she has a kid, and now she's way ahead of Mary, and Mary wants to talk about it, going, no way, that's so weird, because God put a baby in my womb too. And when they met up together, Elizabeth's womb jumps, you know, because now the Messiah's walked into the room, and who is inside the womb of Elizabeth but John the Baptist? Right. And that's where we get that tie in their cousins. John's the older cousin. And so sure enough, they talk about it. Well, what's fascinating is as they have this dialogue, Mary begins to sing out a song of praise to God. And one of the lines in that song is she says, this child will cause the rise and fall of many and will lift up the humble. She knew about the tie in that there was a king in her womb. She knew what this would mean. Well, as they moved forward and she came back home, John the Baptist was born. And ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, what is John the Baptist? But he's merely a proclaimer, right? He's the herald that runs before the king. Because whenever a king would come into town, you always had the guy, right? And he basically says, hey, king's coming. Everybody prepped, everybody ready, let's do this. And he would kind of pave the way so that once the king arrives, everything would be prepped for him. That is really all John is. John is a herald for a king. He's the proclaimer. And that's when another king gets involved. A king by the name of Caesar Augustus. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. Now, why did he do a census? Who cares how many people there are? Kings. Why? Taxes. Money. Okay. Greed is an incredible motivator, right? So sure enough, he wants to make sure everybody's paying their taxes. So we get a numbering of everybody. Now, what was the point of the census in God's sight? We got to get Mary who lives up north down south into Bethlehem to get her to be to get Jesus to be born in the city of David because he is a king and he's going to be born in the king's hometown. How do we do that? God just moves the king, tells the king to do a census of the entire Roman world. Who's pulling the strings here? It's always God. It says, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Remember, there it is again. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Who is Caesar Augustus? Well, he's the adopted son of Julius Caesar, probably the more familiar, more famous one. If any of you remember Julius Caesar, he's the guy that was famous for war and conquest. He said, I came, I saw, I conquered. That's that guy. He's famous for all sorts of things. One of them is he basically launched the 12 month calendar with leap years. And so that's why we have the the month of July that's named after Julius Caesar and his son, his adopted son's name is Augustus, where we get the month of. August, we begin to see there's a lot of him still around in our culture. 
Now, this is the same guy, Julius Caesar, who did the whole wooing of Cleopatra and the whole taking over of Egypt. And this is the guy that said, et tu, Brute, remember that whole thing? And the whole, his buddy Brutus kills him. And all that drama was this guy's dad. But who was this guy? His name was Caesar Octavianus Augustus. In 31 BC, he not just became one of the great generals, but he became the sole ruler of the empire. And he was the first one to hold the title of Roman emperor. This man is merely a pawn to God. All God wants to do is move the baby down. So he moves upon the greatest ruler of the world and says, hey, flick, do a census. Thank you. Here's my point. Who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords? That is Jesus Christ. God is running the show. When we just came through a political environment where everybody's wondering what's going to happen in the world, what's going to happen in the world, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Exactly what God wants. That's what's going to happen. Now, God has always used rulers. It doesn't matter whether they're believing or non-believing. He has always used guys like Nebuchadnezzar, guys, you know, all throughout history, like Xerxes. And he can always use any leader, any time to do his bidding. They are all merely pawns in the whole chess game that God is moving. So we can take peace and solace in the idea that our God is pulling the strings behind the curtain. He is the one that raises up leaders and tears down leaders. And he will move any king he wants to get his job done. And he moves this king to make just the time for the baby to move down to the town of David. Luke 2 tells us the familiar scene. Luke 2 verse 6 While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, John, the apostle, remember there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the odd one out. He said, let me tell you how I see it. You all saw a baby in a manger. Let me tell you what I saw. I saw this. John chapter 1 verse 10 says this. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, speaking of Jesus, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, can you blame him? Here is this obscurity. He's in the middle of a cave in a manger in a trough in a feeding area with animals. He's a nobody. Nobody even has any idea who he is. It's not a big deal with a family. There's no fanfare. There's no great announcement that they know of. So they didn't recognize him. But then the next line is crucial. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Today, we as believers say to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, I have a king. They said, I can't see your king. You say, he's right there. No, he's not. That? No, that's this hocus pocus, this whole fable gig. Come on. Jesus isn't even talked about in very many historical uh, recordings. So I don't even, this guy isn't even a big deal. Nobody else seems to care about this guy. What, he's your king? To those who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see it? Do you see him as the king that he is? Will you bow down to the king that you know? Despite what the world sees, that is our challenge.
And then sure enough, we know that the angels came out to who? In the fields nearby. But the shepherds, and he goes to the shepherds first because it's not all about nobility and royalty. Who are the first people that get to hear about the king? The common man. The everyman. This was the whole plan. He goes out to the lowest strata layer in their whole society. The shepherds, the ones that nobody cared about. They don't know anything. They don't know what's going on. And he starts a grassroots movement. Because now the shepherds hear of this mighty king. They go see him in the manger. They start spreading the news all in the back alleys and with the poor. And the king has now been announced from the ground up. And then what happens? Jesus is then taken on the eighth day of his life. The way it works for a Jewish male is on the eighth day of his life, he's circumcised in the temple. So Mary and Joseph, just as good Jews, they take him to the temple and they present him there to be circumcised. And there are two prophets there, one a man, one a woman. The man is Simeon, the woman is Anna. They both prophesy over him, but when Simeon prophesies over Jesus as the Messiah, he said, this one will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. Just very similar to Mary's statement to Elizabeth, because he knows a king has arrived. How do all these people see a king in a baby? Well, it's not over, obviously. We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Page 681. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Page 681. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, there's another king, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Is that the We Three Kings song we just sang? And they asked, where is the one who has been born? What? King of the Jews. They come walking in looking for a king. We saw his star, the star that said king in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, oh, that's easy in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for that's what the prophet has written. Quote, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so I too may go and worship him. Now, was he interested in worshiping him? No, of course not. He was there to kill him. Who is Herod? You got to be careful because Herod is a title like Caesar. If I said, who's Caesar? Well, you wouldn't know. Depends. You have to know the other names. So in the Bible, there's actually in the New Testament, there's three Herods talked about and they're all different so you start out when jesus was born it was herod the great then as you move forward there was the herod who what questioned jesus that's a different herod and then in the book of acts we have peter engaging with another herod so there's three different guys named herod who's this guy this is herod the great he's famous for all sorts of things He's famous for building the second temple. He's famous for Masada. He's famous for a lot of building things, but this is not a good guy. This is a bad guy. In 73 BC, he was born. And at 25 years old, his powerful father gave him the right to be governor, tetrarch, of the area of Galilee, which is kind of where Jesus was born and where he was raised. Not where he was born, but where he was raised. Now, he ruled there for 10 years, 47 BC to 37 BC. 
he had a bit of a problem. In 40 BC, something weird happened. A little revolt rose up to try to kick him out. And it was a very strange alliance. There were Persians tying in and equipping Jews to fight against Rome. And you go, that's weird. Why do the Persians care? Well, that's a whole nother message. But the Persians lined up with the Jewish people to revolt. And they tried to get him out. Well, he ran back to Rome and said, I need more warfare stuff. I got to go knock these people down. And so sure enough, he comes raging back in 37 BC, shuts down the whole revolt, and he becomes the sole ruler of the whole area. Now, he then leads for another 25, 30 years as the major ruler of this territory. Now, what's fascinating is during that time, one of his own men tried to take the throne from him, a man by the name of Antigonus. Antigonus comes in and says, I want to be ruler. And Herod said, no, I'm ruler. And they start like a bunch of little kids going, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Well, eventually, Herod ran back to mommy. He runs all the way back to the Roman Senate and he says, he's bothering me. And they said, all right, well, we'll get rid of him. However, in order to affirm and solidify your leadership, we are going to give you the official title, guess what? King of the Jews. That was his official title in writing. Herod was the official king of the Jews. Now, the guy who went against him, Antigonus, was banished and they got rid of him. And he began to rule. Now, let me revisit the story for you again. Here come Magi. From where? From Persia. Oh, that's weird. They come rolling into town to hang out with the Jews. How do you think Herod's going to feel about that? Because there's already a Persian alliance that tried to oust him last time. These Persians come rolling into town and they say, we're looking for who? The king of the Jews. He said, you're looking at him. That's my title. They said, no, 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 there's another one. It's like, there's what? I don't think there is. No, that's my title. I'm pretty darn sure. Well, we just saw this incredible, don't you understand? All the stars have moved. There's a new one. He's just been born. Now, do you understand why he's a little bit perplexed and bothered? Okay, this guy's totally disturbed, right? Yeah, because that's going to take over his role. He's not okay at all. And this guy went into a psycho rage. And what ends up happening from that? Obviously, we realize he issues out an edict to kill all babies, all male Hebrew babies, two years old and under, just to shut down this possible revolution that's going to occur and so when jesus came into the world there was absolute bloodshed because all these babies died and so many families had a horrible christmas all because of this psycho king but what about the magi we pick up their story in matthew 2 9 after they heard the king they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by a different way. All right, how many wise men were there? We have no idea. Uh, Tradition keeps saying there's three. Why? Because there's three gifts, and we all know men can't carry more than one thing. Right. So clearly there's three. Right. Well, tradition not only says that there were three of them, but it says what? Here's their names. You can actually go back and tradition will hold one of them's Balthasar or whatever his name is. There's a bunch of them. They got them all named. Right. But it's likely they came with a huge contingent where they all kind of ride in on camels and they got this big crew they're going with them. And they all brought these extravagant gifts. And here you have these men who we call kings. 
bowing down before a baby. What do they see that nobody else could see? Oh, a star told them. This brings up a bunch of questions. Why in the world is God working with astrologers? I thought the whole Zodiac thing was bogus. Why exactly is God encouraging people to read their horoscope? No, he's not. But do you understand? That's what they're looking at. They're looking at the stars. He said, this predicts the future. So we're watching these stars and it clearly says everything aligns. Boom. It says king all across the sky. So that's why we've come. Now you look at them and you go, well, why are you here? You're from Persia. It's not going to matter to you. They said, that's not the point. The point is something significant just went down and we want to be the first to bring our tribute. Do you understand? That's what we do when we come here to church. We bring a tribute. We go up and we lay a sacrifice of our lives, our time, our money, our worship. When you sing, you're laying a tribute before the king and saying, I just want to tell you that I think you're amazing. It's not about what he's done necessarily, because realize the baby hadn't done anything. All he's done is spit up so far. That's not sufficient. That's not where you go, wow, you're amazing. No, it's just kind of you're a baby. But they knew what he meant. They knew what he represented. And so they brought lots of stuff to lay before a small child because they saw the king. They knew he was a king. Why did God put it in the stars? Well, when you want to get mail to the shepherds, they don't really get mail. So you send them a messenger. You send them an angel. When you want to talk with the royalty of another region, You just send them a postcard in their mailbox, which happens to be the sky. And God moved all the constellations around to say, hey, over here, can you go check this out? And they came. That's it. Nothing more fancy than that. So why do we call them kings? Truly, all we know about them is that they're from Persia. We know that they were what were considered wise men or astronomers or scientists. They were the guys who study things. They're almost like what you would have considered if you read the book of Daniel about how they had all the wise men around. That's those guys. That's pretty much who they are. They were very wealthy. They were very powerful. They were very influential. So they were similar to a king, but they were not a king. So why do we call them kings? All because of Psalm 72. Psalm 72, the Jews agreed, as well as the early Christian church, that it's what's called a messianic psalm. It's a description of the Messiah. And in that psalm, it says, when he is born, kings will come, bow down and give him gifts. So when they showed up to bow down and give him gifts, they went, you're kings. That's where it all came from. We move forward in our story. Sure enough, When he goes to kill all the baby boys, Joseph and the family flee to Egypt, and that fulfilled a prophecy. And then, sure enough, they come back. It says, after Herod died in Matthew 2, 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. When did Herod die? 4 BC. What's wrong with that? Jesus is already alive. 4 B.C. I thought Jesus was born on zero day. (laughs) Isn't that how we work our calendars? Right? Jesus would be 2008 years old today. That kind of thing. Right? No. Our calendars are off. All because there was a guy named Dionysius Exegius and he miscalculated. And so our calendars are wrong. So just to let you know, Jesus was probably born at least uh, 4 B.C. Okay, just to give you guys an idea. So you got to reset your calendar. Sorry about that. We move on. 
He said this. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be a Nazarene. In other words, God just used another king by the name of Archelaus to move the baby where? Right up to fulfill another prophecy. And boom, he's a Nazarene. God moves kings wherever he wants to move kings, even bad ones. Archelaus was one of Herod's sons that had the worst reputation out of all of his kids. How bad do you have to be to have the worst reputation in a family like that? I don't know how many people you've got to kill, but it's bad. Does that make sense? And then, of course, we know the rest of the gospel, which is what? Jesus lived and people treated him with their words and with their devotion like a king. We know what? We know that when he rode in on a donkey... He announced himself to Israel as the rightful, what? King. And then sure enough, we know that Herod Antipas examined him and he was examined by a king. And then what? Pilate wrote a little note above him on the cross, which said what? King of the Jews. Oh, that's our king, all right. But what's fascinating is that he is not a king of yesterday and he is not just a king of the future. He's the king of now. How do we know that? Paul in the book of Ephesians said, The power that works in you is the same as the power that was exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God and put everything under his feet. When Stephen the martyr, the first recorded Christian martyr, was being stoned as they threw rocks at him, as he was dying, a vision opened up and he looked in heaven and there was Jesus in the throne room. And indeed... He's king now. And he is still running the show. And we close our message today in the book of Revelation. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation 19, the last book in the Bible, page 877, is where we will finish. For we must see Jesus as he is. One of the marvelous truths that I have stumbled across in my study of Revelation for our theme of next year as we're going to be going through and examining it chapter by chapter, there are certain things that I have learned. And one of the great things I learned from an author by the name of Daryl Johnson, and he said this, Revelation is when God pulls the curtain back and lets you see things as they are now. As he rips the curtain back, and when John, the Apostle John, who received the revelation is sitting there discouraged on a pile of rocks, exiled on the island of Patmos, wondering if the churches that he loved, the seven churches that he worked with, if they're going to be okay, because John can't shield them anymore. He sees a vision behind the curtain of Jesus standing in the middle of seven lampstands and saying, John, it doesn't matter where you are. I'm right here. I am in the middle of my churches and I'm still running the show. And I am king. We finish with this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and makes war and his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are what many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. 
The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, his name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the baby born in the manger. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the curtain being pulled back. And we see you as you are. To as many who have seen you for who you are, to as many that have received you as the king that you are, you have given the right to become children of God. May none leave here today, Lord, without bowing the knee to you as our rightful master and king. Lord, that you are God Almighty and to you we bow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.